This week on Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. So as I've been thinking about when I would deliver some news to the Senate, I always imagined a moment when I had total clarity and peace about the sunset of my work. A moment when I'm certain I have helped preserve the ideals I so strongly believe. That day arrived today. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. And we are back together here uh, in person. Courtney Yap Norris behind the board and Scott Jennings is here. I'm Joe Arnold, your roundtable host. Scott and I back from the sunny skies of Jupiter, Florida. Fun trip. St. Louis Cardinals spring training. Just want to say I'm nowhere near encouraged as, as I hoped I would be <laughs> after all of that. It was fun. It's, it was like great three games. Time. It'll be all right. You know. Well, I'm not basing it upon that. It's just a matter of where we are as a team. But that's that's what's it's just going to be a very interesting year. It is. So we'll see but it, but boy, wasn't it fun to be? I mean, last year it was hot, super hot. This year, seventy five degrees, oh, sunshine, so, uh, the, the breeze coming in off the ocean. You guys look like you were glowing when you came in. Here. Uh, it, it was really. It was amazing well, to be in Florida for a couple of days. I will say, I was sitting there, and and my dad and my nephew were able to join me. Your dad was with you, Scott. Yeah, that was fun. And uh, just being, we were sitting there, and I just, it's just kind of being with your friends, and not having to say anything. But then, you know, Scott would then make fun of me, and then, and then that would kind of t- pick up where it was. <laughs> no, but but uh, but I thought to myself, I said, why? Why aren't we doing this all the time? <laughs> this is just so, and especially in the remote work work world. Yeah, it's like I could just do this for a week to set up some screens and set up in the bleachers and go from there. Anyway, but it's good seeing you yeah. down there, and good I, seeing I you. Was, I was on a long journey. I started my journeys last week going to New York, where I had some TV to do, and then we had the Michigan primary on. No, sorry, we had South Carolina on Saturday. And then I headed to Florida after that. And then we had the South Carolina primary. And then just in time for me to – and then I had to go over to Tampa for a, a a thing. And then on my way home, of course, yesterday, the whole world changed, at least as we've known it, with Mitch McConnell announcing from the Senate floor that he's stepping down as Senate Republican leader, uh, which I think was not unexpected that this would be his last term as leader. I was personally a little surprised that it came early in the year. Uh, but uh, he he made, uh, I think, a really good speech. We're going to listen to some sound of it this morning. But I, he made, a, I thought, a really great speech on the floor. And I think in McConnell's world, I love that he always does it during his time at yeah. a time we don't expect it. When he's ready for it, as he said yesterday, he had the clarity that he always wanted. And I always love when he does that. I spoke to him a little bit before he went out onto the floor. And I have written about this a little bit in the Louisville Courier-Journal today. Just the... Um, you know, this was a major decision he was wrestling with. And I think when when any of us in our lives are wrestling with ma- making major decisions, once you make them, you know, there is some peace that comes with that. And I, I sensed he was at peace with it. Uh, I still think he's, uh, and as I write in my piece, I, I don't sense that he's relieved because of the stakes of the debate that's going on in our country right now. But I, I certainly sensed he was at peace with the decision, Joe. 
but one of life's most underappreciated talents is to know when it's time to move on to life's next chapter. So I stand before you today, Mr. President, and my colleagues to say this will be my last term as Republican leader of the Senate. I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. However, I'll complete my job. My colleagues have given me until we select a new leader in November and they take the helm next January. I'll finish the job the people of Kentucky hired me to do as well, albeit from a different seat. And I'm actually looking forward to that. So it's time for me to think about another season. I love the Senate. It's been my life. There may be more distinguished members of this body throughout our history, but I doubt there were any with any more admiration for the Senate. Which I think is so uh, uh, spot on, Scott, and what you pointed out in your column in The Courier is that McConnell, though his he was uncharacteristically emotional, I think there mm. not not in a in an overwrought sense, but just you, you could for McConnell for McConnell, yeah. um, but he never speaks more forcefully than when he speaks for the institution of the U.S. Senate. Mm-hmm. That is truly, and for some people they can't figure that out. It's what people talked about for a long time with McConnell's um, ambition in his life, because most people in the Senate look around and they see future presidents. Yes. And he's the one person who actually just wanted to live in the Senate. He did. I mean, that was his goal from the from the start. If you read his book, The Long Game, which is so fascinating, you kind of get a sense of how he got to that decision and how what what kind of respect he had for the Senate. And people who don't have who have never worked for him or who don't know him or never talked to him about it, they don't understand it. They 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 really can't fathom the fact that he has that respect for that institution and how he sees its role playing out in American politics. I was uh, struck by his public discussion of his age. I agree. And of the personal tragedy, frankly, that uh, he and Secretary Chow, his wife, are going through. Secretary Chow's sister was killed a couple of weeks ago. and In an ac- a car accident. In a car accident, yes. And that, that just to listen to him sort of describe how that's been pretty hard on their family and and for him to sort of intertwine, you know, he just turned 82 a few days ago, and then this tragedy, and for him to, to sort of publicly ruminate or reflect on, you know, uh, w- what that reminds him about his own seasons of life. Y- you don't hear McConnell talking like that very often. And so, I mean, I, I wrote today that he's the most private public man in Washington. You just don't hear him wearing his emotions or his his interpersonal thoughts on his sleeve that way. And it was it was kind of shocking uh, and I don't mean in a bad way uh, sure. to hear it. Courtney, I'll, I'll say, and, and you're, you're a former staffer. Yes. Um, the only other times that I've heard Mitch McConnell torn up on the Senate floor is when he's been saluting former staffers. Is when a chief yeah. of staff has left mm. because of this. And, it, and it's interesting about as far as what his family is in that regard. Yeah, a lot of people would talk about like why, especially in the last few years, why doesn't he just leave? Why doesn't he just stop? And I think... They don't understand, to Scott's point, we see him as McConnell the person. A lot of people don't. We were, I was talking to Kaylee, one of our coworkers this morning. 
here at Run Switch, and she was saying the same thing. We see him as a person. We know him as a person. He's talked to us as people when I was getting married or when I was making life decisions or trying to find different jobs, and he's speaking with us. People don't see that every day, and he doesn't show that publicly, and he did yesterday. So it's interesting. that I've, I've known Mitch McConnell in like three different iterations having to do with what our relationship is. Uh, initially, it was, I'm not saying adversarial, but when I met Mitch McConnell uh, in, during his second term, by the way, it shows you my mm. age, uh, interviewing for the, him for the first time there, you and, and from the very beginning, it was very clear to me, even when he was a, a younger senator in that regard, that he was formidable. This was someone that you had to do your homework for. It, it was like it's gotten to coming coming from spring training. It's like before you you know the next the, the opponent the next day who that, who that pitcher is going to be, and you're and you're studying the game plan and what kind of pitch arsenal he has and how am I going to counter that as a reporter or as a, an interviewer. I always felt before talking to Mitch McConnell, okay, I need to do my homework. I need to be prepared. This is he. This is the big leagues. And I will also say, from a journalist perspective, and there, are, if if I think most journalists in this community, if they're being honest, would say they owe anyone who is able to kind of report on national stories to a degree owes that to the fact that Mitch McConnell was our senior senator from Kentucky because he was he was that I was able to kind of you know uh, you know put my lasso around that and and be able to ride that a little bit and say hey I can I can do some national reporting today. Because what he's saying is going to be consequential. So anyway, but that's that's my experience with him first, and then only only in recent years, uh, after I retired from journalism and went to a different career, was I able to sort of be, be able to kind of um, engage with him differently. But my question for you is, for both of you, there is this McConnell family that is talked about often, are referred to, but I think because of what you said a moment ago, Courtney. Because McConnell, for 99% of America, is more of an image or an icon of something else, of this, a, a boogeyman for half the country, um, <laughs> that they don't understand that. So just tell me about what McConnell world, the fraternity of staffers and the family and the people that he supported over the years, what was that like yesterday watching that? And what have you heard from other people? I think it was emotional for everyone. I was texting my the McConnell family, so to speak, and people that I knew that worked for him. And I was happy that I was at home so that I wasn't tearing up at the office and people are staring, <laughs> staring at me. But I think when you know him as a person, and when I was a staffer at 21 working for the senator, he never made me feel like I was 21. You know, he never made me feel like I, my opinion was less than. And you don't get that a lot as a young woman in politics. And so I appreciated that. Most jobs that I went to didn't appreciate the fact that I was a woman or that I was young or even from Western Kentucky and went to WKU, which is not an Ivy League school. Um, he didn't put a lot of value in those things. He put a lot of value in who you were as a person, your work ethic, what you brought to the table, your opinion. And that meant a lot to me. And it still means a lot to me. And so when I talked to him about when you live in Louisville, a lot of your friends are liberals and they kind of have a push where they don't like him they don't like him personally but you know for me I spoke about him as a person and that it meant a lot to me just as a young person in politics yeah I uh, had exchanged some messages yesterday with people uh, I've known throughout the years uh, and as part of team Mitch both inside and outside you know there's still people obviously working in his office in Washington and um, 
some of those folks in the leadership office, their their tenure will come to an end this year. He still has two years to go in um, the in his term in office, and he has not yet announced whether he's going <laughs> to run for reelection. Two years beyond this year, so right. really three years, you know, right. is what he's got left. And you know, we we were sort of kicking around because uh, it's been so long since he wasn't the leader. He got the job in two thousand seven. I mean, I was still in the White House. Uh, working for George W. Bush when he became right. the leader and, of the Senate Republicans. And bear in mind, even before that, he was in Senate leadership. Yeah, I guess after the 2002 election, he went into leadership. And so basically he's been at, at an elevated level for so long trying to remember what it was like before. Not, not too many folks who can, but we were all sort of talking about what it would be like uh, for Mitch McConnell to be unburdened and unshackled by – what it takes to be the leader and often having to bite your tongue and often having to focus on things that you don't, it's it's not your top priority, but it's the top priority of the day. And so you have to deal with it. Now you're going to have, uh, I mean, we're going to have Mitch Palooza. He's being re-released into the wild for the next. Uh, I thought that you saw a little glimmer of, <laughs> of that. Like when he said, I'm going to enjoy sitting from that seat over there yeah you could tell he was a little bit giddy about it well I think there are things he wants to do and you heard this Joe in his speech um, where he talked about uh, with his last breath arguing for American exceptionalism and I, you know my suspicion is um, he's he's on the appropriations committee the Senate is run based on seniority he has the second most seniority in the conference behind only Chuck Grassley my suspicion is if he wants to be, you know, the the eight hundred pound gorilla in the appropriations committee, he can be, and and I suspect he'll put a particular focus on defense appropriations. He may wind up making John McCain look like a dove after he gets done <laughs> replenishing and and expanding America's arsenal. I think his commitment to that, you know, the idea that we're a global superpower for both hard and soft power purposes is real, and obviously that's the. That's the fault line in the Republican Party right now, the sort of the McConnell-Reagan worldview versus the sort of MAGA isolationist worldview. And they're on the ascent right now. The isolationists are ascendant. But McConnell's not ready to let the argument go. And and obviously this has been a push and pull in the party for many years. And he is our link to an era when people still remembered why the world order is the way it is. You know, not too many folks around anymore that remember why the world was set up the way it was after World War II. Well, Mitch McConnell certainly remembers it and is going to keep fighting for it, and uh, hopefully some people follow his lead. Before we talk more about the policy of it, one more question for you, Courtney for, and, and, and Scott, on the, the staff thing. Because, again, I'm fascinated because the, the fraternity, like I called it, or whatever, I don't know what you call it, uh, I've often seen some those from the outside who are somewhat more derisive of this fraternity I get the impression that they were thinking that McConnell almost commanded the or d- demanded that loyalty. And but once I've met and talked to the the, the people as part of this team, whether it's a Daniel Cameron or uh, I'm trying to think of others, Russell Coleman or others who have been part of this, is that there's more of a there's there's this deep affection. And what is that? You talked about it before, as far as how he, how he treated you. But what to what do you ascribe this? This is immense loyalty that Josh Holmes I'm thinking about, too. Yeah, well, he invests an enormous amount of himself in his people. You know, when he 
puts you on his team or like in my case, I mean, look at my history with him. 18 years old, son of a garbage man. I have nothing. And I wind up with a McConnell Center scholarship at the University of Louisville. So my education right out of the gate, you know, he's investing in me. And then to become part of his larger political orbit over the years, um, you know, he he invests in and remains loyal to his people over time. And I and I and it's a two way street. And they invest in and remain loyal to him over time. He's not one of these politicians or sort of um, you know whatever industry you're in. You know, everybody knows somebody in that industry who uses people and casts them off when they're no longer useful. Mm-hmm. That is not the Mitch McConnell way. He has teams, and he puts people on his team, and he shows them just as much loyalty as they show him. And and that's the way it's always been. I, um, you know, from the moment he first invested in me as a as a young kid, uh, all the way to now, um, I've always viewed him as a mentor and someone who was interested in what was going on in my life and. You know, our, I mean, we were intertwined and it wasn't a transactional, you know, kind of relationship. That That's, that's how I have viewed it anyway. I would agree with that. I mean, I told my story for when I was a young staffer and, you know, now that I'm 20 years out, you kind of do have like the reflection of, I thought about, it's almost like serendipitous a little bit of how you get there to be in the McConnell world and then. He does have the utmost respect for the people he works with, no matter where they come from. I think that's that's a great way to put it. I think he respects the people who come into his life and come into his orbit and, and are part of his team. I mean, he knows it is a sacrifice to be involved in politics, to go work for the Senate office the way Courtney did in, in Washington. He knows that's a personal sacrifice to do that. And I think he appreciates it deeply. And uh, And so... I've just I've always known him to treat people with respect because I think he respects the personal sacrifice that goes into being part of this profession. One last thing. I think he loves the profession of politics. Mm-hmm. You know, I think he respects people who think enough of our system to engage in it. I mean, like he did. I mean, he's been a political operative and I say that with with a lot of affection for his entire life. And people who become political operatives, people who want to go into public service, and be part of the system, I think he respects the heck out of people who think enough of our state and our government and our country to say, well, I'm a talented person and I'm going to devote some portion of my life to this. I could be doing anything. I could ignore it. I could be making more money. I could do anything. But I'm going to devote some portion of my life to this. I I think he respects the heck out of it. You said a moment ago, and echoing part of your Courier Journal column, uh, Scott, I know you'll be writing in other newspapers as well, and people are asking you for your comments. I I know that immediately after it happened, you were on the phone from Florida on CNN with the breaking news as this was all kind of unfolding on on Wednesday. Uh, But one thing that you you pointed out just a moment ago was the 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 sake that uh, or the the point that Mitch McConnell was not doing this just to gather power. Yeah. And most of his critics, they would they would hear that and say, "Well, that's not true. He is only about he doesn't he has no principles. And he's only about uh, you know gathering power for power's sake." And uh, it's difficult when you're a reporter and kind of being surrounded by that zeitgeist of of not being sucked into it because you can see first of all there has been no one more effective, at least in modern Kentucky history, as far as how to galvanize political power and use it to its most effective uh, uh, ends. 
And but I guess the the, the difference is, and and it might boil down to whether the person who's observing this agrees with what those ends are. Yeah. Because ultimately, what I've seen Mitch McConnell is 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 um, it's something which is sorely lacking in most modern political um, uh, dynamics, and that is the willingness to take fifty five percent of what you want. Versus the hundred percent, and so that you have the the true believers and saying, "Well, no, he's too much of a compromiser. He's a Democrat. He's whatever. Whatever he's." I, he, by the way, I'm old <laughs> enough to remember when he was the Darth Vader right, figure right. of the Republican Party. They was too conservative. No, that, I mean, it's, you know, it's, he was this you know right. this this conservative specter looming, and now he's too. It, I, I've always likened him to a rock on the beach. The rock doesn't move. The tide goes in and out. Yeah. Love it. Our perspective of the rock, we see more of it or we see less of it. But it's, it's moved. And it, it, it used to be 20 yards away from the from the tide, and now it's yeah. on top of the tide. But the rock hasn't moved. It's right. just that I our know. politics changes. Yes. But the rock hasn't moved. He's never really uh, been any different uh, than he is today because to understand him is to understand one word, outcomes. He is an outcomes-based politician. What are the circumstances? What do I want? And when I do the algebra on those two things, what is the best outcome I can get? And that that's what he's driving towards. I think he confuses, frankly, today's Republicans, a lot of them, because he knows how to work for an outcome and to achieve an outcome while they only know how to achieve self-promotion. You know, I mean, today's politics is performative. Success on a daily basis in politics today is did I get on TV? But to McConnell, success is, did we confirm a judge? Yeah. Did we pass a bill? Did we achieve some outcome for the conservative worldview beyond just, you know, hopping on television and, and hollering about it? And I think people are confused by that. They don't understand politicians who are trying to get outcomes that don't just involve some personal self-aggrandizement. It's, inter- it's interesting, somebody who I got into politics because I love American history and I love the effect that politics has on that and studying somebody like LBJ and looking at him comparatively to McConnell how McConnell runs the Senate and how LBJ runs the Senate you know if you wanted to get power then you do it the way LBJ did which he stood over people and yelled at them and pointed his finger and in McConnell with demanding the respect that he does is the way he operates the Senate and I, I, to Scott's point, I don't think people understand that. I don't think they understand the way the Senate works, for one. I think I would joke with my husband a lot and when people were running for the Senate. You had the, the Ted Cruz's of the world who would come up there and be like, they're not doing enough and they're not doing this. And you really had McConnell who understood how the Senate was supposed to operate and the outcomes they were supposed to have. I, I was, I've been sort of laughing about some of the conservative criticism of yeah. McConnell today in the wake of this announcement, even the, the House Freedom Caucus. You know, sending oh. out a uh, an a-hole tweet. You know, if Chuck Schumer, I heard someone say, if Chuck Schumer had engineered a 6-3 liberal majority on the Supreme Court, uh, they would have renamed the island of Manhattan after him. <laughs> I mean, it's it's, so it's, it's interesting yes. that the people who seem to be the biggest critics are the ones who uh, say they want all this conservative stuff, but but never seem to achieve it. I think there's I think there is some amount of jealousy, honestly, that that there's a lot of people who talk. He's one of the few that do. And they don't really want him to have the credit for the accomplishments of the conservative movement, but you know, as Eric Erickson, our friend of the pod wrote this morning, Roe is dead. 
The legislative filibuster is alive. The court has a 6-3 conservative majority. And thank you, Mitch McConnell. And Eric, you know, was a prominent critic of McConnell for many years. But if you read his piece today, he has a clear-eyed understanding of the difference in politics between the people like McConnell, who know how to get things done, and everyone else who just know how to complain. This is the old metaphor of workhorse versus show horse. Yeah. You know, it's, it's part of it here. And also, I think, and this is the the uh, <laughs> the quality of Mitch McConnell, which um, I don't have, and I think most politicians don't have, and that is the willingness to be disliked. Yeah. Um, Eric talked about that in his piece. In fact, Eric's piece was called Mitch McConnell Doesn't Care. <laughs> and, it, and and part of it was he, do, he doesn't care if, if people in Washington don't like him or he doesn't care if the media doesn't like him. He's only ever cared about one thing. Do the people of Kentucky like him enough and respect him enough to reelect him? And that then enables everything else he's doing. Right. Other than that, he does not care. And that willingness to be that figure uh, and to take the slings and arrows of a political debate while everybody else gets to go on TV and try to win a popularity contest, McConnell's doing the opposite. He is such a an outsized figure in so many areas. And I will say, and, and so the two things I'm thinking about what you just said, Scott, number one is that he has been taking those slings and arrows for so long. And as a result, everyone else has been able just to hide, or not hide, but just be able to have the benefit of not taking them in, in, in the U.S. Senate. They're the Republican caucus of the U.S. Senate. Suddenly they're going to feel like what it's, what it's like yeah. when he's no longer there to be the foil. But secondly, as a Kentuckian, and all of us here in this room and the podcast are Kentuckians, uh, the disproportionate influence that he has and has exercised for the good of this state and this region. And I I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I, I think it's a situation where even the people in this state who deride him or criticize or whatever else, I think they're waking up this morning and saying, crap. Like, all of a sudden, we're just, we're just Arkansas. Yeah. You know, we're just, we're Mississippi. We're whatever. We're... Suddenly, this Kentucky and this 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 outsized uh, uh, influence that that he's exercised there for the sake of the state, what happens when he's gone? Well, we're we're going to get a hard lesson, not immediately, but and and I really think for the last two years of McConnell, you know, being a senior appropriator uh, is going to be good for Kentucky, and we still have Hal Rogers. You know, once Rogers and McConnell are gone into the future, not today, but you know, a few years from now, and Rogers is running for re-election. He is. Um, but once once we get past their era, I mean, we're we're, we're going to learn a hard lesson about uh, what it means to lose the ability to punch above your weight, because we're a small rural state, and if not but for outsized influence from people that have serious seniority, you don't have a lot of pull in that room. And we do have some leaders coming up. Brett Guthrie uh, is running to be chairman of the Energy and Commerce Committee. Andy Barr from Lexington is running to be chairman of the Financial Services Committee. But they are still a long way away from the seniority of McConnell and Rogers and what that means for a state like ours. So it, it's going to be a, you know, pe- people just don't remember what it was like before and uh, the before and, times. And, the before times. And, uh, and you know, eventually we'll, we're going to learn a hard lesson about that and it's not going to be fun. Courtney, I'll uh, commend to you 
uh, video I put together for my, my day job with Kentucky Electric Cooperatives of, uh, of Senator Leader McConnell uh, when in 2019 he was given the highest honor the co-ops give in the state called the Distinguished Rural Kentuckian. But it, it was a great exercise for me to be able to go back to some of my reporting days and put together a story. It ended up being about a 16, 17-minute long biopic of, of, of the leader, but talking to a lot of people. But what I enjoyed about it is also learning about the statewide influence and the and it's funny because the you know for the most part people in um, in DC are going to look at him one way but he's I'm asking him about these things he's talking about the tobacco buyout and protecting those farmers back in the day or even the 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 in, in the midst of uh, when I was talking to him that year it was getting some of the hemp language in uh, to the egg bill and things like that uh, that was more contemporary at that point but anyway but my point being is is that just his, again, his outsized role for Kentucky communities. And I don't know, Scott, how this state can adequately recognize uh, Senator McConnell's uh, contributions and the fact that, I mean, just, again, and you said you're a history student as well, mm-hmm. Courtney. I, I, I mean, I'm, I love history. I've studied uh, uh, in this for, for – I have a, I have a degree, and, and, and I, I, can, I can't think of anyone else in the last – Hundred years in Kentucky history has had more of an influence. I mean, I'm, I'm, in other words, I'm thinking about 19th century Henry Clay. Yeah, you'd have to go back to Henry Clay. I mean, Alvin Barkley, Alvin Barkley, Vice Barclay. President, and was the leader of, of yeah. and of course, and he was the, the preceded McConnell, if you will, as the Longest a leader serving. of a of a party in the yeah. U.S. Senate. And and certainly Wendell Ford had influence in the Democratic conference, but he never achieved right. the heights that McConnell did. Right. But it's really when you look at the the pantheon, it's McConnell, Barkley. Clay, you know, as the preeminent legislator uh, alpha dogs, you know, from Kentucky in, in U.S. history. And, of course, we're the birthplace of Abraham Lincoln, you know, if you want to expand it out. But in terms of people who, who represented Kentucky over a long period of time, that's, that's the Mount Rushmore, McConnell, Clay, and Barkley. And, um, you know, my view is, uh, and I think you alluded to this on your own social media, Joe, there's a big old corner of the rotunda in in the state capitol in Frankfurt that's missing a statue right now, and it'll be a travesty if they don't put Mitch McConnell. Oh, there. there's. Eventually. I mean, it, it is oh. something which it, it should be a bipartisan recognition of a, an American historical figure, uh, and again, an American, a patriot, and a and a, and a great Kentuckian. Uh, who who belongs there in the in the Kentucky Capitol? You're of course referring to the. It's vacant because Jefferson Davis's statue right. was removed a couple of years ago. Which I, by the yeah. way, I thought was the correct decision. Absolutely. And, and by the way, McConnell called for it long before it happened. Yeah, he was oh, one he of the did. first Republicans to do it. Yeah. Yes. So that's 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 uh, that's appropriate. And uh, beyond that, I'll I'll go one step further. Um, not only do I think that it's it's a requirement for historical purposes for Mitch McConnell to be in the the Capitol Rotunda in Frankfurt. Uh, no offense, but in the course of history, there has been a, a, a few states that have revised which of their citizens they choose to put in the U.S. Capitol mm-hmm. in Statuary Hall, mm. and that's been there's been and, and and no offense to Ephraim McDowell, I think he's he's, he's a, it's a great hospital and uh, and 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 he was a pioneer in um, in uh, internal surgery. Uh, but in terms of, of effect on this country and on the state, 
Um, I, I see no problem with Henry Clay and Mitch McConnell being the two yeah. statues in the Statuary Hall in the U.S. Capitol. I'm not huge on cancel culture, but I'm ready to cancel Ephraim McDowell. <laughs> I think out of the U.S. Capitol. Well, so, it was really he fun shouldn't to be give, canceled. He, he was I don't a, know, when you get Capitol tours and you're like, we have Henry Clay and then we have Ephraim McDowell, and then people yeah. are like, what? Yeah. I, I mean, think, it's I fine. Think, but... I'm, I'm fixing to dump the Oppo book on Ephraim McDowell. <laughs> he's and he's not here to fight back. I saw another DC. Re- <laughs> it's 2024. <laughs> it's 2024. I saw another DC reporter uh, suggest he said, "Well, it's a surety that uh, the 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 companion bridge to the Brent Sprints Bridge, when that's built in Cincinnati, should be the Mitch McConnell Bridge." I, I think that's right. I mean, I wonder if any of the Senate office buildings will wind up being renamed. I mean, remember, yeah. he is the longest serving party leader of either party in the history mm-hmm. of the Senate. I don't know which one would be most apt to be renamed. Uh, his office, his personal office, is in the Russell Building, uh, but I and I don't, I don't know the ins and outs of I don't that. Exactly. Renamed because those are all named for, of course, previous legislators. I, I'm thinking of the Taft Monument mm. uh, near the U.S. Capitol for the, mm-hmm. the former legislator, senator from Ohio. Yeah, uh, that's probably what I'm thinking is something along those lines. It's like a like a bell carry on there on the. Senate side, yeah, yes, that's a that's that's exactly right. So I don't, I I assume he'll be uh, into the future. I mean, we, we, I think, I think we have to resist the urge to to talk about him today, like this is because he's, the day he retires from office. Because, but I want to get it started now because I think it's. it's <laughs> I agree, it's, yeah, but I, but I do think, and we maybe we Joe's can play carry that. He's going to carry that flag. Maybe we could play a clip, but I I think he made it pretty clear on the Senate floor what he intends to do for the next couple of years, and that is effectively lead the Reagan faction of the Senate Republicans in this debate uh, over America's role in the world and fighting for American exceptionalism. So um, I don't think uh, I don't think we've heard the. The last of Mitch McConnell as a national public player in something that's of vital importance. Here he is again from the Senate floor on Wednesday. I'm unconflicted about the good within our country and the irreplaceable role we play as the leader of the free world. It's why I worked so hard to get the national security package passed earlier this month. Believe me, I know the politics within my party at this particular moment in time. I have many faults. Misunderstanding politics is not one of them. That said, I believe more strongly than ever that America's global leadership is essential to preserving the shining city on a hill that Ronald Reagan discussed. As long as I'm drawing breath on this earth, I will defend American exceptionalism. Again, Mitch McConnell on the Senate floor on Wednesday. And again, a great patriot, a great Kentuckian. Uh, Senator, if you're listening, uh, we appreciate that. And uh, it's, been a, it's been a real pleasure uh, you know, covering this. But I'll point out, Scott, before we go to break and then come back with some presidential politics, uh, I, I saw quite a bit of news coverage on, uh, on Thursday morning with people con- people confusing, I think, this announcement as if he's leaving office. Yeah, I heard some people misunderstanding. So he's just announcing that he's not running for leader again. And and so he'll be leader until early January 2025. Even though the election for the next leader will be in November. Or December. Or December. It'll be, it'll be sometime it, after the after election. After the election. But yeah. then that, that new, when the new Congress takes 
office. That's when the new leadership begins. Right. And so there's so, some confusion there about the, – but beyond that and what you said before, he is still very much a U.S. senator. And then at that point, he'll have two full years left, and I suspect uh, we haven't heard the last of the old lion, and he'll, he'll have some things to roar about. I'll, I'll just say, I mean, again – from what I understand, he still had a campaign fundraiser recently. So yeah, oh yeah, he had a big one in Frankfurt the other night. That's yeah. right. So <laughs> you never know. You never know. When we come back with Courtney Yap Norris and Scott Jennings, we will talk about the latest in presidential politics. Hey there, Flyover Country listeners. Today's episode is brought to you by the Bluegrass Media Lab, Kentucky's premier media studio. The Bluegrass Media Lab offers a wide array of services, including video production, podcasting, live shot broadcasting, web development, media training, and more. You name it, they do it. Head over to bluegrassmedialab.com today to get in touch. Now, back to more Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. This is Flyover Country. I am your roundtable host, Joe Arnold. Courtney Yap Norris is here. Scott Jennings. Uh, of course, we've uh, spent the first half an hour or so talking about uh, the announcement by leader Mitch McConnell, the longest Senate leader in U.S. history, announcing on Wednesday his decision to uh, step down from that or not run for re-election as, uh, as Senate leader. But he's still very much there. But, Scott, it's it's. Um, you know, it's 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 hard to to ignore the uh, the dynamics of where the politics are nationally and how this all plays against that. The other thing I I thought was interesting uh, before we move completely away from McConnell is that he was talking about it's time for new leadership and a new time. Yeah, and not so veiled reference to the two uh, front runners for U.S. president. Yeah, he sent I think a pretty clear message about. Uh, uh, <laughs> what we should be thinking about as a country in terms of the next generation of leadership. And obviously the, the die is cast on the presidential campaign. But, you know, it's been part of this whole age debate has just been such a big part of this cycle. I mean, he's kind of the first person to step out and, and acknowledge it and effectively bow to it, you know, and, and, and honor it, you know, honor what the American people are telling him. I mean, he, he said, obviously, um, I've got a lot of flaws, but misunderstanding politics isn't one of them. I think part of what he meant was, I understand what the American people want to see happen next because, you know, and as he pointed out, I'm 82, and but but you know, Joe Biden is old, Donald Trump is old, and uh, uh, you know, for one more cycle, we're going to have an old president. Uh, but McConnell, I think, probably did a, a pretty good service by sending that message to everyone else. You say the. No question about that. I still think there's a chance for Joe Biden to step down. Before <laughs> I know. You're all over it. You and like 47% of, of Democrats out there. Bloomberg so News Morning Consult poll, uh, when asked about uh, the front runners in the 2024 election, eight out of 10 swing state voters said Joe Biden was too old. Yeah. Well, and it follows along an ABC News survey from last weekend or weekend before last where 86% of Americans said that they didn't think Joe Biden could complete another term. And so the the cake is baked on this issue. It's it's only a question now of whether that is enough to stop people from voting for him or if they dislike Trump enough to swallow that age pill and do it anyway. So is Trump the same age as Biden? No, he's 4 still, years younger. Yeah. 4 so, years younger. Well, so, so okay. and fewer than half of the respondents said Trump was too old. Yeah. So, well, look, there, there's no doubt, and, and people talk about this on TV a lot, and I've even heard the president's campaign talk about it. Well, you know, Trump's almost as old as Biden, you know. Just, I mean, honestly, watch the two guys. 
One of them acts like an old man, and one of them doesn't. I mean, I'm I'm sorry. It, it, there's no comparison when you look at their energy levels, when you look at the way they conduct themselves, when you look at their sort of physical capacity behind a podium. Just when you look at them walking around. I mean, I mean, everything about Biden screams over the hill. Everything about Trump screams he's still with it. Now, again, that could change. You know, people get older and things happen rapidly. Uh, but if you just compare them, to, that's what people are reacting to in these surveys. They're just looking at the two and saying, well, it's obvious which one's compare, way older. Compare Biden now to Biden 2020. Absolutely. I mean, he's always been a little rambly, but no, I, sometimes you can't even understand what he's saying. He he was in physically he was protected from like the American people didn't see him move around that much in co- 2020. Yeah. I mean, he got to yeah. run that campaign from the basement. He will not have that luxury this time. Or will he? And I mean, he why not? If you if if I was Joe Biden's campaign manager. Well, well, par- partially because We've already seen him. I mean, right. we've seen him operate in the presidency, and every day that you see him, you know, shake hands with the air or amble across the South Lawn or mumble unintelligibly, you know, when trying to, to make some simple point at a speech, I mean, all that's already happened. It's not like this is going to be a new thing. And so— Oh, I think that when he sits in front of a teleprompter in the Oval Office, and this is a Rose Garden-type strategy, and I think that, you know, you, you put enough, uh, you know— B12 vitamins in you, whatever it takes to to kind of summon up the energy for a five-minute speech. I think you can – and I also think that there are technological uh, ways to kind of overcome some of this. Do you think Trump and Biden will debate, though? Because there's – I, I mean, don't. Do you think they're going to have a presidential debate, or do you think they're just both going to say, no, we're not going to do it this year? I don't know. Well, I guess there's two thoughts there. Um, Trump, as the presumed front-runner, if, you, if, the, if the Trump folks are to be believed, why would he want to do that in the first place? But then again – why would Biden want to do it? Because I, th- I think in a live setting like that, it's just a, it would be setting up for disaster. I think I think it might depend on who's winning and who's losing. Yeah, you know, come the fall. I mean, if Biden is losing, he'll want to do it. He's going to want to do it. He's going to want to show he's got a chance. Although there is a danger, you know, incumbent presidents often have disastrous first debates. I mean, they're both oh, incumbents, right? <laughs> but well, but but like you look back on. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, Obama and how poorly he did mm-hmm. in his first debate in 2012, George W. Bush in his first debate. These incumbent presidents sometimes just aren't ready for it. They're a little mm-hmm. they're a little caught off guard by an aggressive challenger. And given Biden's already existing challenges to walk in there and to have a disastrous first debate would be a really, really huge risk at that point. Because that's you know, the first debate, there may be still a handful of people making up their mind, maybe. But you know, by the time the second and third debate, yeah, the cake's pretty much baked. But by that first, that first debate, that's a high wire act. By the way, I was watching. I, I I was not watching it last night or on Wednesday night, but I was just curious what folks were saying about McConnell on some of the late night uh, talk shows, and I ended up stumbling upon Jimmy Fallon from NBC, and he spent the vast majority of his uh, monologue on Joe Biden's uh, medical report. And talking about that, and I, I will tell you from a, it's sort of like going back through history and looking at some of the pop culture. And I don't know to what extent people watch the. Tonight so you're show you're anymore. watching Jimmy Fallon's clips talking about Joe Biden's medical report. I'm watching the Jimmy Fallon clips with Sidney Sweeney. That's what we're doing at the Jennings household. <laughs> okay, yeah. okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and get, who's Sidney Sweeney? I knew you were gonna say that. That's why I brought it up. I'm just. <laughs> I don't know who Sidney Sweeney is either. I'm sorry. What? Should I know who that is? You neither of, of you heard know. of him. Her? It's a girl. girl. 
Are bullet. you kid? Are you both kidding me right now? I have no Can I idea. Google it? Let's Google you should it. go into your ex and and look. There's a hilarious clip of uh, Fallon and Sweeney. Uh, she an actress. She and is an actress. She... S I or S. She's probably one of the most famous actresses in the world right now. What does she do? For, okay. She's an actress. She is best known for her roles in the HBO drama series Euphoria, which I do not watch. I haven't seen that before. Mm-hmm. She's and in a movie right the now, rom com. Season of the anthology series of The White Lotus. Did not watch that either. She's got a movie out right now. What's She's 26 movie? years old. Or she was in The Handmaid's Tale? She's uh, There's a movie. It's either out or it's coming out. Reality? Right Anyone but you? That's it. Anyone but you. And she's on. She's promoting it. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Okay, I did see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. So maybe, was she like the uh, the, the girl who lived on the old movie set with the... This is before, this is before she was huge. Like, she's huge now. And the fact that neither of you know this is... What is happening right now? I- <laughs> Courtney, right, right here. A little fist bump. I- to be honest, I don't watch a lot anyway, of new stuff. Back, I told you you have to wait now in three years, maybe or my four point, years. When I my catch point. Up. <laughs> let me go back to my point. So I'm thinking, really about, just... I'm thinking about I'm thinking about SNL. Uh, and this is before both of your lifetimes uh, during the Gerald Ford presidency and Chevy Chase. And really, I mean, here you have Gerald Ford, who was a star athlete at the University of Michigan and was one of the most accomplished. Uh, I, he, Scott is showing us a. a She's cute. Yeah, a, a a girl with uh, that's Jimmy Fallon. Jimmy Fallon with Sidney Sweeney. Uh, that's that's fine. <laughs> anyway, but the, but Chevy Chase would make fun of his as far as like yeah. his his like falling up on the steps of Air Force One. It's been a long time. But Jimmy Fallon, he was brutal on Joe Biden uh, on on Wednesday mm-hmm. night, and just like showing all these different clips and all the I mean the the falling and the stuttering and the and the uh, the sort of he was saying. He said, "You know, it's it's the doctor that was complimenting him for, you know, that he got like ten thousand steps a day. He said it was it was like only like only walking across the room because of his shuffling. Oh, you know, it's just oh. it's just, but it's true. Do you mm, think, you know. from his campaign standpoint, do you think there's any way he can come over this? No, sure. No, no. Is I, there I, any possible chance that everyone he'll do something? People will be like, okay, well, I think maybe he's okay. I don't think the I don't think he can make people think." Well, I thought he was old, but now I realize he's not. That that <laughs> ship has sailed. What he has to do is to say, "I'd rather have an old man that's right. than Trump." That that's the only, that's what he has to accomplish. There's no way to put this genie back in the bottle right. now. I mean, and and in some ways, the only thing to do about it is just to embrace it. He's mm-hmm. and you can see he's trying to, right? Uh, but there, no, I think I just see no way to reverse public opinion on this. Number one. Even if you could move it incrementally, I mean, he's, I mean, it's eight and ten, nine and ten Americans think he's too old. How are you going to ever drag that down to fifty-fifty? It's an impossibility. So, you know, the vast majority of the American populace, I believe, is is voting for or against Donald Trump. Joe Biden is really this sort of like a placeholder. Yeah. That's what he was in the first place. That's what he even said he was in the first place. So he was a transition person. He was there just to kind of get him out, and then that way he can hand over the reins to the new generation. And then he got there, and who's going to give up power? So that's what's going on right now. But so Donald Trump defines that. My my, I guess question here for both of you is: Here we're talking about this new morning consult poll, and we're looking at the same poll. By the way, Biden trails Trump in all seven states, all the swing states: Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, so, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. Arizona, Trump plus six. Georgia, Trump plus six. Michigan, Trump plus two. Nevada, Trump plus six. North Carolina, Trump plus nine. Pennsylvania, Trump plus six. Wisconsin, Trump plus four. I mean, it, 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 and it's not just them. You look at all the swing state polling that's going on right now. Donald Trump is, is leading this campaign. It's not, these are statistically significant leads. 
And you want to talk about Nikki Haley a little bit? Before we do I that. I love the fact that we. Before we do that. Two months ago, we're like, Nikki Haley. Let's talk about Nikki Haley. And I would love to talk about Nikki Haley. have we not mentioned her? Because she is. Yeah. I think Gavin Newsom versus Nikki Haley should be a great contest this She's fall. She's just a little engine that could. I, yeah. I, well, so I was on set Saturday night after South Carolina, her home state, which she lost. I thought her speech sounded like someone who was going to run as a third party or independent candidate. I mean, it did not sound like a speech for Republicans. I'd vote for her. She went to Michigan and uh, got about 30% of the vote. At this point, I think she's talking to a lot of Americans who I think fundamentally agree with her that they wish there were other choices. But in order to make this a reality, she would have to to stop running as a Republican and, and run as an independent. And I, some states have sore loser laws. I don't know exactly how that would work, but but that's what it feels like she's right. doing to me. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's what it feels like. So you just pointed out something, and it's a, a very important word in this conversation, that is independence. Mm whom I think is are ultimately going to decide the election. And I look back at the 2022 midterms, and I look at the polling that was wrong then. It didn't quite pick up on what the independents were doing. And I don't know. I guess I've been burned so many times, even in a journalistic world, of um, by bad polls and by polls just not being able to, to really capture reality. Mm-hmm. Um, I I have my doubts about these swing state polls, and I have my doubts about because this again, this is a primary uh, season of the year and not the general election time. I just think by the time it comes around, Trump is just way too dangerous for these people to uh, to to embrace. I heard somebody say something the other day that I hadn't thought of, but you, you know, for many years uh, during Trump, we talked a lot about the shy Trump voter and how the polls weren't like picking up. You know, some of these folks who are going to vote Trump, somebody posited the theory that there actually may be shy Biden voters. I think so. That because of the cultural sort of um, attitude towards Biden, which you were just referencing with the Fallon thing, no one wants to admit they're voting for Joe Biden. But in this person's estimation, there may be some shy Biden voters. I have no idea if this is just a harebrained, you know, hot take or not. But anyway, they raised a point that is sort of uh, the natural follow of what you're saying. I mean, what you're arguing is that Biden could be behind in the polling but still win. Now, I've heard some senior Democratic strategists say that it won't be enough for Biden to just tie Trump nationally, that he's going to have to win by two or three points to win the election. They think a tie probably ends up tipping towards Trump. Because the Electoral College. Yes. So, But But what is your thought overall for both of you? I mean, did we learn anything and has anything changed since 2022 in terms of how we're gauging the electorate because the electorate has changed a lot too i mean the surge in independent people who identify as neither democrat or republican is continuing we've seen that in kentucky in particular that is the largest by percentage of voting block that's growing right now is people who are saying they're independents and i don't know especially in a world of post row where that falls i'm gonna go back to say i the electorate doesn't i don't think they truly understand what it means, I don't think, to be a Republican or a Democrat these days, because I think it's so it's changed. foggy. Mm-hmm. And when I became a Republican back in 2000, it meant something completely different than for my kids when they signed up. Or I even look, I just look at my sister who is not politically active, who calls herself an independent. And most of the time it's because she really just doesn't know what to listen to. And so I think that's what you see today is I think people are going to start picking candidates based more upon what they see on television and things like age and if mm-hmm. they feel like they're an angry person and 
less so based upon their party lines. Yeah, the parties are changing, and and for the people like you, Joe, who've gravitated away, uh, you're not the only one. I don't want to make you feel lonely, but, but I haven't gravitated away from. Do you feel lonely, their, Joe? No, I haven't gravitated away. The the, the, the people have gravitated away from me. Okay, whatever. You're you're moving apart from. Yeah, I'm not moving. I'm the rock. <laughs> but, <laughs> I'm not. But I'm with McConnell in the ocean. But the, but the <laughs> on the beach. But the but the Trump bet is they can be replaced by this new working class coalition of voters, multiracial uh, working class coalition exists all over the country. I mean, people who probably in the 90s considered themselves to be Clinton Democrats, you know, sort of rank and file labor types. There's a bet that you can shed the Joe Arnolds and bring in the working class uh, types that Trump attracts and basically have enough of a replacement to win the election and simultaneously by, you know, then transform the Republican Party. I mean, that is effectively their bet. I don't know if it's true. Trump's never gotten 50 percent of the vote. He's never gotten more votes than a Democrat. But is that evolution happening so rapidly? We're going to find out this, you know, the results of this election will be watershed for that that very political science exercise. Yeah, I don't think I agree with you, Joe. I don't think these polls mean anything. I think it. I think it'll be very. I think they won't look similar to the way the November looks. I will say this: Donald Trump didn't lead a single poll in 2020. Never, ever, ever did he lead Joe Biden. He was never ahead. That's interesting. No polling showed him ahead. And, and Joe in, Biden won. I and, guess. And bear in mind, as far as history, what was going on during that time? COVID. Yeah. So we were all available to be and BLM. <laughs> and so, I mean, yeah, BLM we, and COVID were the two. But I'm just, I'm just saying, prevailing as, narratives during that time. J- just to, just to be devil's advocate to your point about the polls. You know, it was pretty right. You know, Biden was ahead and he won. This time, Donald Trump consistently leads Joe Biden. That's interesting. Nationally but, and in the states. Um, before we wrap it up, do, do endorsements. My, by the way, my friend Harry, just to, my, yeah, my friend Harry Enton, one of our political data guys at CNN, he pointed out a, a, a while back to me. It's really not been since 2004 that a Republican candidate for president had a durable and consistent lead in national polls in a presidential campaign. We didn't in 08, we didn't in 12, we didn't in 16, we didn't in 20. Donald Trump, for the first time since George W. Bush 20 years ago, has a consistent lead across national and swing state polls from different pollsters, different methodologies. He is consistently ahead. It has been a while. That's interesting. Who's the last Republican to win the popular vote? George W. Bush, 2004. My question for you is going, also going to be, before we wrap up, uh, do endorsements matter? And I'm, I'm thinking about, again, the people who served in the Trump administration and the number of leaders who are distancing themselves or saying they will not vote for him. And does it matter? Well, I think that it's... It's already happened. I mean, so much of what has happened to Trump has already happened. People coming out who work for him to say he's dangerous or uh, people, whatever they, you know, it's already happened. And so it's not like it's going to be a dramatic thing in October. You know, 50 people who work for Donald Trump, you know, say it's, you can't reelect. They've already done it. I mean, all these shots have already been fired and he is where he is. And so I think it mattered in the, in sort of the global stew pot here that has gone into this campaign, but if those people remind folks that they did that, and no, it's already based. There's already no October the, surprises this year. No, the only thing that could happen to Donald Trump is he could get convicted of a crime. He's got a trial coming up in New York, but the Supreme Court has now made it 
far less likely, according to the lawyers uh, that I listened to, that the January 6th case is actually going to go to trial, which is kind of shocking. Before everyone, the election. Before the election. So, so really, you know, what else could happen that would dramatically change your opinion of Donald Trump? What do you, what do you not know that, you are, that would change your mind? I got, is there a TV ad? Is there a piece of information? I mean, it's hard to imagine what you could learn about someone like Trump that you don't already know. And honestly, the same is true for Biden. Is there something that Joe Biden could tell you that would cause yeah. you to go, mm, gosh, I didn't know that? No, these two guys are the most well-defined presidential candidates running against each other in American history. The difference is, is that Donald Trump has shown uh, temporarily at times uh, – a willingness to listen to his campaign strategists and not be as uh, extreme yeah, on this. Yeah, I would you know, agree with that. And, and, and be a little bit more disciplined. It's very rare, but there are times where you do it. Joe Biden can't help but be old, and it's only going to get older. Well, and you got to think, too, the American population, you know, flyover country people, they have less money in their savings accounts. Their groceries cost more. They hear nothing about but, like, the border and how terrible all of these drugs coming in are. That's what they hear on a daily basis, and that's going to make make a big difference. The Democrats believe, by the way, that a whole bunch of their voters simply aren't paying attention right now and don't even realize that this presidential campaign is happening. And they believe that as the year goes on and there's more of a realization among these, I would call them low-info-flow voters, uh, about what's happening, that you're going to see – Democrats lock in and come home to Joe Biden. And then that will be ultimately reflected in the polls. I don't know if they're right, but that's their theory of the case. Uh, I think the Trump people are locked in right now. I mean, they know what's going on. They're they're locked in right now. But the Democrats seem to think there's a whole bunch of voters out there who are inclined to vote Democrat who just simply haven't come to the realization this thing's happening. Well, Mitch McConnell, we'll put a bookend on this here. Will Mitch McConnell ultimately endorse Donald Trump? Oh, I, I think this shouldn't surprise anyone. He has long said he will endorse the party's nominee. Yeah. I don't know what form it will take. I don't know if it'll be a speech or a statement. I, I have no idea what he's going to do about it. But he's always said he was going to endorse the party's nominee. And he's a party guy. He believes in the Republican Party. And all things being equal, I assume he believes he's he's uh, likelier to get more outcomes with a Republican president than a Democrat. Absolutely. Really Scott do. and Courtney. Great spending time with all of you. And, Scott, thanks again for our great time in uh, yeah, fun, fun trip, man. In Jupiter, Florida. Looking forward to uh, baseball season starting in about a month. Yeah. What are you looking forward to, Courtney? Who's your favorite baseball team? We're Cubs fans in our house. Oh, that's right. I, so I, you told me that, and I keep trying to forget it, which we, is why I keep asking you. We Ugh. had a brief uh, there was a my great aunt was a Cubs fan. My grandmother was a Cardinals fan. So they were. Oh, so you together. got a little bit of positive bit of both. DNA um, in there. Okay. My husband's a big Cubs fan. It's you know we had a brief run when my son was one. When yeah. We won the World Series, and that was about it. That's all we got for the rest of our lives. Happens so. every hundred and eight years. So good luck next yeah. time. <laughs> for Scott and Courtney, I'm Joe Arnold. Thanks for listening to Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. I still have enough gas in my tank to thoroughly disappoint my critics. And I intend to do so with all the enthusiasm with which they've become accustomed. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. 
If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Mm-hmm.